Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So, 2 Chronicles 17, we're, we're at 870 BC. Jehoshaphat is the son of the previous king who was, anybody remember? What's that? Yeah, Asa, A-S-A. And uh, so he's the son of the previous king. And um, so 870, he takes over and this is what it says. Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and put garrisons in Judah and in towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. That is all we're going to get about Jehoshaphat today. It's just setting the stage. He's a good guy. He's in Judah. He has peace. He has prosperity. He has power. He's following God. And he has priests and Levites going around. So this is, this is a good moment for Judah. It's almost exactly contrasted by the worst moment, aside from the exile itself, for Israel. All right? they, get, they get the worst king. Okay. But... Before we learn anything or very much about Ahab, we start learning about Elijah. And in fact, our first introduction to Ahab really is through Elijah. Okay, we're going we're gonna to start reading a little bit about Ahab. But this story with Elijah and Ahab doesn't end uh, today. It goes on. Ahab has more to do. But here we go. Elijah is a very pivotal figure in Scripture. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Galead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So this is fascinating because we, 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 it feels like we pick up a little bit in the middle of the story, doesn't it? Elijah and Ahab obviously already know each other. There's something. But our first introduction to him is confronting Ahab with bad news. And Elijah does it in a very strong and forceful but accurate way, right? He says, hey, I'm just telling you something. First of all, this is what God says. Secondly, I serve God, not you. Right? Elijah's right off the bat saying, I'm not your prophet. I'm God's prophet. And God has sent me to tell you there's going to be no dew nor rain. Now think about that. Not just no rain, but it's going to be a severe drought. There's not even going to be dew. There's going to be no humidity. It's going to be bad. For the next uh, few years, he says, it turns out it's going to be about three and a half years. Um, which is a long time, right, to go without rain. And when you have a drought like that, it causes famine. So this is going to be a bad time. And Elijah tells Ahab. Now, what's interesting, and I'll tell you this, and you will see ample evidence of it as we go. What's interesting is Ahab apparently, from this moment forward, blames Elijah for the drought. See what I'm saying? He doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. I was going to say, does that make sense? But no, not really, because it's God's fault. But he blames Elijah. He looks at Elijah and says, you did this. And so he's very angry with Elijah forever. <coughs> okay, but that last line you said there, kind yep. of, Elijah makes it sound like he almost sets him up for this because he says, unless I say so or something like that. He says, accept it my word, but yeah, I don't. Yeah, accept it my word. So it means like he, he, he's almost holding him account and says, I could do it. So he almost tells Ahab. Possibly, I I, so. possibly. Except, I think when he says, "As the Lord, the God of Israel, whom I li- uh, whom I serve," then why did he say as that? As he lives, I think he does well, say that. He's the, he's the 
I think he's, that's what he's saying. I am saying you're not going to have rain, and I will be the one to say there will be rain. Oh. Now, I will give you another possibility. It could be life-preserving to make that clear. Right? God will only bring rain back through my voice, so you want to oh. kill me? Okay. Okay. <laughs> now, I don't know how effective it is, because the very next thing that, that, that God tells Elijah is this. This is the other reason I know that Ahab hates Elijah for this. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide. We're going to read the rest of that sentence, but notice what God is telling Elijah to do. Hide. Why does he need to hide? Because Ahab yeah, wants to kill him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so that's what God says to him. You've done your job. Now leave here. Even that is like, get away. Don't continue to stay here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Keith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bed, bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, lest you think that being a prophet is a romantic ideal, think about the reality of this situation. Because this is how it is for lots of prophets, by the way. It is rarely a cushy job. Especially when the kings are in opposition to God. When the kings are following God, like David, then being a prophet of God's not so bad. Nathan had it reasonably good, right? He probably lived in the palace. Elijah, though, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all these kings, all these prophets to come, they're not in a good place. It's a tough job. And so really, Elijah is now homeless, and he's being fed by ravens. And let's not have a you know, a nice sanctified picture of that. Ravens are scavengers, right? What are they going to bring him? Gross food. Yeah, roadkill. Yeah, they're going to bring him roadkill. The fact they bring him bread is amazing, but they're, they're you know, he's, so I'm, I, this isn't to say he can't cook it. There's also a lot of people who are like, you ate it raw. Well, I don't think that's required. I think he probably was able to cook it. But, but nonetheless, it's not. This, there's no sort of luxury. No, there's no luxury. Plus, I imagine it's not a great deal of food, right? I mean, the ravens are bringing him enough to stay alive, but they're not bringing him. I doubt it. I mean, they could. There's a lot of ravens. Who knows? Who knows? But at the same time... by himself living in a cave next to his tree, which is probably really relaxing for like two, three days. Yeah. And he's drinking from a brook. He also knows, by the way, that brook's going to run out. Right? At some point. It's not an ocean. It's a brook, and we're about to have no rain. So he knows it's going to run out. So there's a couple of things. There's probably conflicting things in, in Elijah going on right now. On the one hand, one thing we see consistently, and I will point this out several times through this story of Elijah, is there's three things we see about him over and over and over, and I think it's important we understand this. Number one, he is courageous. He is a guy who's not afraid. We see him at the very beginning of the story. He's facing off Ahab. There he is, right? Boom. He's courageous. That's who he is. Number two, He's very faithful. And by that, I don't just mean he does what he's told. I mean, he really believes God. When God says something, he just, it's almost like he can't conceive God not coming through. So God says, go hang out by a brook and I'll feed you with ravens. And Elijah says, all right, I'll do that. And he's persistent. He perseveres. I mean, look at the ministry he's given him. Your ministry is to preach that there's going to be no rain for three years and then go hide while that happens. That's, that's a, that's, and then he just perseveres, just hanging out, waiting for that to happen. But he's okay with that. 
But I also think what we see about Elijah is because he's courageous, because he's full of faith, because he perseveres, he also has a lot of moments which are big and powerful and flashy and showy and even amazing, like the ravens, because that's the conflicting point. On the one hand, it's a little humiliating. On the other hand, it's kind of amazing, right? Every day I wake up, the ravens bring me food. He's doing better than a lot of people in the land. That's right. That's the other thing. At first, it seems bad, right? Because the drought is barely started. He's probably like, people are eating better than I am. But as time goes on, he's actually eating better. And we're going to even see it even gets better than the, the ravens here in a little bit. God, God upgrades him in a little bit. But, but yes, that's right. So he is also seeing God do this amazing thing. And I think, though, that the way that God is doing this with him, you have to ask a little bit, is God also making sure that because Elijah is going to be such a pivotal person and he's going to have such big moments, is God also making sure that Elijah maintains some humility? Because being fed by ravens is just not sexy. It's just not powerful. And I do think we see that. And the very next thing we see, I think we see the same thing, that Elijah has to be humble to, to be able to go where he needs to go. Just just bear that in mind. So we, um, we've seen... God do this lots of times, all the time. He never does anything the same way twice. Sure. So when he fed the Israelites, he just dropped manna from heaven. That's right. So is there something else significant about the ravens that he's doing this, or is it just because it's something different? I think it's different. I do think it's a little more humiliating than do on the ground. You're sharing the food with scavengers. I mean, it's... it and. And by the way, it's interesting that manna came from dew on the ground, and there's not going to be any dew on the ground. So that's also interesting. Just, just that's part of it. Yeah, it's, it's also, but it is like the manna in the sense that it's day by day. Elijah has to trust that it's going to be there again that evening because they bring him food in the morning, they bring him food in the evening. Right. If they don't come back in the evening, they didn't. That, and that also makes me think they're only bringing enough for each meal, right? They bring him food in the morning. That's it. They bring him food in the evening. So, I don't know. I don't know if there's any other significance that God has in mind with ravens. I do think it's kind of a, it's almost an unclean way to receive your food, right? And I do think there is something about that, that God is, is reminding Elijah, stay, you're dependent on me. You're dependent morning and night. You're dependent every moment for these ravens to bring you food. And I am taking care of you. I don't want you to worry. But I do want you to remember where it's coming from. And I do want you to not get a big head because you're going to do some big things, all right? So let's press on. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. This is the author's very small, subtle, simple way of saying, guess what? Elijah was right. <laughs> right? God is fulfilling the prophecy. So then the word of the Lord came to him. Again, not before the brook dries up, but when it does. So here is Elijah hanging out, waiting for God. Okay. Every day by day, that brook has less and less and less. And now he walks out one day and he's like, I can't get any water out of this. And that's when God tells him the next phase. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. I really want you to think about this phrase because the idea of a widow supplying him with food is probably as surprising to him as a raven supplying him with food. Because the widows were charity. They were the people you gave charity to. They weren't the people that fed you, right? These were the people that had nothing. And so he says, Go, I'm going to have a widow feed you. And so this is no less miraculous than the ravens. Maybe, and when you talk about uh, humility, he has to ask her, he has to go beg a widow for food, essentially. That's how he could see it anyway, right? Yeah, beg a beggar. Yeah, which does not feel great, you know? But again, he does it. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering, gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so may I, I may have a drink? 
as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. So even kind of the two phase of this, I think it's very human, right? I mean, I think it's, I, I wouldn't call it doubt, because he's asking at all, but it is sort of like a, almost you're testing the waters as you're going. You know, do you have some water? Oh, she's getting that. Okay, do you have some bread, too? It's uncomfortable, it's awkward, he's kind of hanging out there. Being rejected by a widow is probably about the, <laughs> as low as you can get. But here he is, and he asks. And then she says this. As surely as the Lord your God lives. Fascinating to me, she uses basically the same phrase that Elijah used when he talked to Ahab at the very beginning. So is God sort of speaking through her, possibly? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I don't think she's being uh, dramatic. This is a severe famine. The first people to suffer are going to be the people who didn't have much to begin with. They had no reserves. And she's looking at Elijah, and I don't even think she's unsympathetic. Because also notice she doesn't have to tell him anything. She actually reveals to him she does have enough for one meal. She didn't have to say that, in a sense. She could have just said, I don't have anything right? It's like you're walking out of the grocery store and you've got a little bit of change in your pocket for your snack and the homeless guy asks you for money and you know, you say, maybe I don't have anything because you kind of don't, but you kind of do. <laughs> and that's where she is. She's like, I don't have anything. I can't help you. And just to let him know how serious it is, honestly, this is our last meal. After this, we've got nothing. So really, we're just, we're just going to go home and eat this and it's for my son and then we're ready to die. And Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Now, again, this is Elijah's faith. This is where he's just like, oh, I know God's plan now because this is who God is. And maybe he told Elijah, maybe he didn't. But either way, Elijah's like, God told me the widow was going to feed me. If the widow's going to feed me, he's going to have to provide for her. And that's good news for her. So that's what he tells her. He says, hey, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. Okay, that's a weird statement. I'm going to go home, make some bread and die. He didn't mean that, obviously. <laughs> but he obviously meant... You're going to go home and make a little bread. He doesn't even mean for you. He's about to spring that on her in a second. He says, go home and do as you have said. But first, <coughs> make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. That's an awesome statement. That's an awesome place. He says this is what the Lord says, so I'm guessing God did tell him. So he says to her, you're going to, not only does he promise her, you're going to be okay for another few days. He says, you are going to have enough food for the rest of the drought. And you're the only person God's making that promise to. Well, maybe me too. <laughs> but we're the only ones. So look at that. Well, it does require faith on her part, right? She has to make his food first. She has to use up the rest of what she has first. So let's give her the credit because she does. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. And I love the author here. No drama, no nothing. He's just like, she did that and they had food. Okay, miracle. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So here Elijah now, now and it doesn't say this, but everything we see indicates he's probably living in their house too, which seems reasonable. And if I have someone in my house who's keeping my flour and oil running, I'm absolutely going to let him live in my house. <laughs> yeah. 
So I'm guessing he's living with her. So this is a step up for him. If you're anybody but Elijah, you might be tempted at this moment to think, how come it didn't start this way? You know, how come we had to do the whole raven thing? But that's all right. Um, so here he is. He's just, he's just walking through the journey here. And he's not doing anything amazing, but amazing things are happening around him. So when he was being fed by the ravens, he was given meat and bread. Now he's just eating bread. It's true. I and mean, that's what they're talking about. All bread and water. is flour and yeah. oil. So yeah, so maybe it's a step down bread. in that sense. Yeah, maybe so. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So we don't know what her sin is, but, but isn't it interesting that that is immediately her response? She's not really blaming, she is blaming God, but she's also, she, she's feeling guilty. <laughs> we don't know about what, but she's feeling guilty and seeing that as the reason. And the irony is not lost here because Elijah is here and that's the only reason her son is still alive. And I think she's probably thinking, yeah, that's great, but I don't want to be alive if my son's not alive. And if it was my sin, why do you have to just remind me of my sin and take my son? You know, is that, is that what this has been about? You almost get this sense that, and you can understand this, she's a widow. She's had some hardship in her life. You almost get the sense she's been waiting for the other shoe to drop. She's like, I've got this man, I've got in my house, my... My fortune is amazing right now. I have enough food and water to survive. And then her son dies, and you can almost feel her thinking, of course. Of course. You know, when you make a wish with a genie, there's always a drawback. When you wish upon the monkey's paw, there's always a dead guy coming out of the grave to get you. If you don't know that story, it's, that's, there you go. That's the spoiler. But um, the point is, you can kind of see that. It seemed too good to be true, and now I see it was, because sure, I'll have, I'll have flour and water until the rain comes back, but my son's dead. So she goes to the man of God and says, is that really what this has been about? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he's staying, and laid him out on his bed. He is in there. Yeah, you're right. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy on this widow I am staying with by causing your son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Again, we see some interesting things about Elijah. I do think this is a moment where God has not told him what's going to happen. Do you see that? Because he asks, I don't know. Did you do this, God? But even not knowing, he's still pleased with God. And he does it three times. And this whole section is easy to read without remembering this is a very emotional scene for everyone, right? The woman didn't come to Elijah and say, have you done this to me? You know, she, she came to him and cried and screamed and he took the boy and maybe he's crying, right? Because he's obviously moved. And he takes the boy upstairs and he lays him out and he says he lays on the boy. I mean, I think this is a very emotional moment. He's covering the boy and he's just crying out to the Lord. And I don't think it's three quick prayers. I think it's three moments of pleading with God. And here again, we see Elijah's faith at this moment, not in what God has said, but in who God is. I think he's just thinking, this is not like you, God. Would you bring me here just to destroy her son? That can't be what's going to happen, right? I mean, it could be, but I have a hard time understanding that. But you also see his persistence, right? I mean, how many would, of us would do this once and then go, well, yeah, bringing people back to life doesn't usually happen. It's worth a try. I was faithful enough to try. But he tries three times. And the question is, would he have tried four times? Would he have tried five times? We actually have no idea. Because what happens after three times is the Lord answers his prayer. So in other words, he kept going until the Lord answered. So I, I don't want to make too much of it, except it does, again, tell us a little bit about, about who Elijah is. 
He is a man of courage because it takes courage to take that son, take him up and try this because you're just giving false hope, baby. Now, I, I do notice he didn't promise her anything, right? <laughs> he didn't say what he was going to do. He just took her son. She's certainly hoping something. But I also think these are important, these stories. We hear them. We know them. We know that people come back to life in Scripture. I just think it's really important to remember that this is as unusual for them as it would be for us. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, Micaiah, to teach in the towns of Judah. Remember the names of Obadiah and Micaiah. We're going to run into another Obadiah. It's unlikely that it's the same Obadiah because the Obadiah we're going to run into is actually in Israel and he's working for Ahab. So it's unlikely unless... Now there is... When we get there, I'll tell you there's one reason that it's possible, in fact, that Obadiah is the same Obadiah who ends up for Ahab. When we get there, I'll tell you why, but it's unlikely. But Micaiah uh, does also come up and he may be the same Micaiah. Um, but again, it's... Not necessarily. The big thing about Obadiah is it seems to be a pretty common name in the Old Testament. So I wouldn't make too much out of that. But his name is going to be prominent, so I did want to mention him. He's a supporting character in the big melodrama of Ahab and uh, Elijah. With them were certain Levites, Shemaiah, <coughs> Nathaniah, Zebediah, Ashel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tob Adonijah, and the priests, Elishama and Jehoram. And they taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. And they went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. So what happens is he, he actually assigns some people. He takes his officials and he takes the priests and he takes some, uh, some people who it just says also, oh, Levites. So he takes the priests and some Levites and some officials, basically sends them out to educate everybody on the law, to remind them. What, what it was like under David. And it's interesting that an interesting side note of this is that the surrounding areas become afraid of Judah. Because the reality is it's still, it's still near enough in history to David and Solomon's reign that people know when, when Israel, or in this case Judah, has their act together and are following God, they're unstoppable. And so they look at what's happening in Judah and they're like, uh-oh, they're getting serious. Here we go again. So we should be careful. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful. He built forts and store cities in Judah and had large supplies in the towns of Judah. He also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. Their enrollment by families was as follows. From Judah, commanders of units of 1,000, Adna, the commander, with 300,000 fighting men. Next, Jehanahan, the commander, with 280,000. Next, Amasiah, son of Zikri, who volunteered himself for the service of the Lord, with 200,000. From Benjamin, Eliada, a valiant soldier with 200,000 men armed with bows and shields. Next, Jehozabad, with 180,000 men armed for battle. These were the men who served the king, besides those he stationed in the fortified cities throughout Judah. So he's powerful. He's got a good military. People are willing to fight for him. They're following the ways of God. This is a good king. This is a good moment, right? So far, it's as close as we've gotten to David. And you see some of the same kind of descriptions. Side note. So, does he, um, uh, you said the Philistines are bringing him gifts too. Are they on good terms with the Philistines? Or? Well, I think it says that right after it says the fear of the Lord struck the kingdoms around Judah. So I think what it's indicating here is the Philistines are in the same circle. They're like, ooh, we remember when David was following God and it was strong and this guy's following God. Let's get in on the good side. 
So they're just trying to maintain. I think so. They're not really. Right. Um, okay. Right. I don't think there's been sort of any official alliance. I think they're just like, uh, we recognize that you could be the resurgence of Israel. At least that's what they're afraid of, I think. Um, another interesting side note, not, not really terribly significant at all, but interesting. Every time Benjamin comes up, and it, not every time, often when Benjamin comes up and it's talking about their military strength, it often identifies them as being people who are good at long-range weapons. Um, whether it's the sling and the stone or whether it's the bow and the arrow, that's just something we see a lot. Um, it doesn't mean anything, but it's just something interesting about the tribe of Benjamin. It seems to be something that they consistently uh, are, are known for. And so here he mentions all these people, but only with the, from Benjamin does it mention that these men are armed with bows. So here Elijah is, he's doing this. He's actually expecting God to rescue this boy, though. That's incredible. That's amazing. He's at least expecting the possibility. And so far as we know, he has had no model of this anywhere, right? This has not happened that we've read so far. Do we have another story in the Old Testament where someone has been brought back to life? I don't think so. This is, he's demeaning their God, right? He's like, oh, that again, what we're seeing so far in Elijah's life is that God is also heavily, heavily impressing upon Elijah the need for dependence. So that Elijah, because again, what could happen if Elijah asked once and the boy jumped up? Elijah could say, hey, I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> right? But he's prostrating himself, and he's laying on the boy, and he's kind of humiliating himself, and he's pleading three times, and each time is probably more desperate and more dependent. So I think a lot of it, from the raven to the widow to what happens with the boy, it, part of it is teaching Elijah, it's, it's me, buddy. Stay humble. Stay dependent. You can't control me, you, you can, but, but just, just trust me. But and I think that's part of the David, reason of why. David also said he didn't do it three times. What he did was he did it until God raised the boy back to life. It just happened to be three times. But, but Elijah didn't go in there saying, I'm going to do this three times. I think that's there, true. It was just being persistent I think he's just it. doing it and over and over. three times, he came back to life. And and he I was guess, just being persistent about it. I guess, too, that makes sense, too, because it did become... Uh, a really dependent situation like God has to come through in some way here right Right. He's going to keep doing this there's nothing he, he can do. And so again, what we're, and there are reasons I'm stressing what we're learning about Elijah because there's, there's a twist in this plot here that we're going to get to in a little bit. But, but so what we're learning about Elijah is when God tells him to do something, he does it quickly. And it's interesting how God even uses words like quickly, like leave now and go at once and all these things. And he just go, go, go. And he does. And then when God doesn't tell him what to do, he still throws himself in front of God and says, you got to do it. You got to do it. So let's go on. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Again, the author of 1 Kings is very matter-of-fact about some of these things, right? He's just like, and by the way, that's what happened. <laughs> Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And again, you have got to put on your movie imagination moments here, because this has got to be an amazing moment, right? This is, for Elijah, it's a great moment. He's like, I get to take her son to her and show him he's alive, which is just awesome. She gets to see that her son, who she was convinced was dead, is alive. You know, the boy is just probably confused. But I think it's just, it is one of those, just those, it's just, you got to picture this being just an extremely exuberant moment. It's a big, big deal. Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. 
Now this is interesting to me because there's a small contrast. Nobody would argue that the widow was anything but faithful. I argue that she is full of faith, right? She, she made the bread for him before she made it for herself. Okay, I'm not arguing she's not faithful. But there is a little bit of contrast in the solidity of her faith versus the solidity of Elijah's because she's already been witnessing a miracle for several days. But she and, and it's only now that she says, I believe that you're a man of God. Sure. And she's like, whatever. Sure. Or it means that when she comes to him angry, she's not just yelling at him, she's hoping that there's something he can do. And when he takes her son, she's like, I'm going to see what he does. And God's working for her. And here's what I would say. I'm not, again, accusing her of a lack of faith. I think she's a hero in this story, and we ought to see her that way, because she is used by God for Elijah in a great way. But it's the kind of doubt that I often feel, and it's this kind of doubt. It's the kind of doubt where you don't know that you're experiencing doubt. You're, you're moving according to the way that God's asking you to move. You're doing the things you should do. You're looking for him to do something. But you only realize that there's been a lot of doubt behind it when God does what he promised and you go, oh, he actually did it. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, <laughs> I only kind of believed it. Whereas Elijah almost comes the other direction. He's so convinced that God is who he is that he's willing to lay on this boy until God brings him back to life. And when he does, I'm sure Elijah had a certain sense of surprise and delight because I'm sure his faith is not, you know, beyond human. But I do think there's a point in which he's less surprised than anybody. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea where when it happens, he's like, that is great. That is fantastic. I didn't know for sure it was going to happen, but I sure thought it might or I wouldn't have even bothered. And now I don't have to go watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. And think about that phrase, and I know that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. What is she talking about? Well, one thing we know he told, he told her is that she will have bread and, and oil until the rain comes back. Well, so she now has more confidence in that. But Elijah's been living with her. From what you know about Elijah, do you think he's quiet all the time? <laughs> I don't. I think he's been talking her ear off. I think he's been telling her all sorts of stuff. When she says to him, are you just here to remind me of my sin, doesn't that sound kind of familiar? I think he knows what her sin is. I think they've discussed that. I think there's even things he's told her about that. We don't know, possibly about grace, probably, possibly about forgiveness, possibly about God being God, possibly about, I, you know, is it, is it possible that part of what she's saying is you've been telling me good things and I've been afraid to believe them, but now I've seen this amazing thing and now I believe you. I don't know. It's a little speculative, but it feels a little what? bit like it to me. And what we discover is that basically Jezebel is a huge devout follower of Baal, and Ahab seems to just be fine to follow Jezebel. And that the, between the two of them, they've done everything they can to make this the national religion of Israel. So this is pretty far along, right? Now, the people of Israel are doing their hedging, their bets, splitting the difference. We'll see that in a little bit, where they still want to worship uh, the God of Israel as they know him and they still want to worship Baal at the same time and kind of see who wins um, and we'll see that kind of revealed in a second but but this is but but as far as Ahab's concerned Baal is the god and there is none other 
And so as I mentioned, he's in charge of the rain, he's in charge of prosperity, he's in charge of fertility. He and his sister are both in charge of fertility. And the way it kind of unfolds is that Baal is in charge of the prosperity end of fertility, like crops and kids. And Ashroth is in charge of the sensual end of fertility, meaning what provides children. And that, that's kind of where they go. And so he, though, as the, the, because he's also responsible for kids, we also know that child sacrifice, specifically sacrificing your firstborn child, is something that a lot of Baal worshippers did. There's no reason to assume that Ahab and Jezebel did not do that. Um, and remember, there was a reference last week to somebody who built uh, a large building in Samaria, and it says he built it on the blood of his firstborn child. And probably that's what it means, that he sacrificed his child to Baal as he was building that. All right, so let's press on. Now, summon the people. This is what Elijah says. He says, you're the problem. And then he says this. He lays, throws down the gauntlet. Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So, again, they're, they're, the prophets are like kingdom, king palace guests all the time. But also, that's 850 prophets right there that Elijah is just going to go up against. Just, just the day in the life for Elijah. So Ahab sent word, and Ahab's like, whatever, sure, that sounds good. We're finally going to get rid of this, this uh, bozo. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and ascended the prophet, assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said, Nothing. So it's not like they said to him, no, we're going to follow Baal. And it's not like they said to him, yes, we'll follow God. It's like they just continued to do what? Waver between two opinions. <laughs> they can't answer him. They're just like, uh, we don't want Whoever to. Wins. Yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to know. It's interesting that the word here, waver between, I was reading one of the, uh, well, a couple commentaries, which said the word here is actually dance. Dancing between two opinions. And some people think it's almost like hopping back and forth. Like it's not even just sort of a passive wavering, but it's like a scrambling to always be on the right side at the right moment. Right? So they're, they're throwing themselves into it. You know, they're just trying to get there. Plus, as we're going to see later, worship of Baal often includes a lot of dancing. So it may have also been a, a reflection on that. Elijah may have been using a little wordplay. Well, for the last three years, Baal hasn't alleviated the drought. Correct. The Right. Right. I can see how it would be a takeaway. But I do think that's his point: is that he's like this. Now you've you've tested Baal, and it's not working. Right. So why do you keep wavering? Yeah, you're right. People will get whatever they want to get out of things sometimes. Right. Um, and again, Elijah's courageous, and he's faithful, and he's persistent. He's not only now that he's out of hiding, now that God has given him permission to come out of hiding, and it's reasonable to assume he never would have been in hiding if God hadn't commanded it, right? Now that he's come out of hiding, he is full force. He's like going around to everybody. He's like, hey, I'm here, and I'm here. Where are you? And everybody's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Wait. Is this true? No. It's not true. Does Elijah know it's not true? Yes. Yes, he knows it's not true. I'm not going to make a lot of it now. I'm going to make a lot of it later. <laughs> but I want you to remember this statement. It may seem like he just got carried away in the moment, but it seems pretty relevant. It's not that long ago he had this discussion where Obadiah told him there are at least a hundred other prophets. And for Elijah to say, I'm the only one left, feels a little bit 
glory grabbing, perhaps. Right. Perhaps he's just standing in defense to them. That is a reasonable argument. Let's press on and see. He says, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. This is simple. It's elegant. It's the kind of, think about magicians that you go see. This is how you want a magic trick to be. Kind of just simple. I'll call, and if there's fire, there's fire, right? We're not going to have a curtain or do all these shenanigans. We're just going to have bowls on things and say fire and see who wins. But it also means it could just spectacularly fail because maybe no fire comes from anybody. That doesn't actually help Elijah. You understand that? The, the, the Baals win if nothing happens. The Baals win if Baal happens. And Elijah only wins if God happens. Right? And the Baals don't. And the Baals don't. That's true. If they both have fire, he still loses. You're right. So he, he only wins if a miracle occurs. It's reasonable to assume God has told him to do this. I don't think he just magically decided to do this. Because it works. Otherwise, I have a question. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Yeah, they're like, we don't know what to choose. We don't know how to tell. We don't know who to trust. And he's like, well, here's what we're going to do. And they're like, that'll work. We like that. Yes, that's a good plan. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Okay. This is funny. Elijah has a definite sarcastic streak, which is about to come out in spades throughout the rest of this conversation. But it starts right here, because this is a goofy thing to say, right? It's like, you, it's like Chuck Norris standing in front of nine people and saying, you take the first blow because there's only nine of you, right? That's yeah. kind of what he's saying. He's like, you take the first bowl because there's 450 of you and there's just me, so you need the head start. <laughs> you get to choose. Choose one of the bowls and prepare first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no, one, no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. So for four hours, he just lets them go at it. And he's, I'm just imagine, just chuckling the whole time. But notice he's giving them four hours. He wants to make sure there's no question about any of this, right? They can't say later, we didn't have enough time. You know, we, we just need a little longer. But at noon, he does start to taunt them. He doesn't close it down, but he does start to taunt them. He says, shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be wakened. And by the way, there's pretty convincing evidence that the word busy used here is actually a... Um, yeah, what's the other word? Not metaphor... But yes, the metaphor. It's a metaphor for um, using the pot, going to the bathroom. After a long time, in the third year, all right? That's a long time. <laughs> Three years ago, he went to Ahab and said, there's going to be no rain. There's been no rain all this time. Now, we didn't know at the beginning that it could be three No, years. he just said a few years. We knew, but we yep. know. Okay. You're right. We know, but you're right. It didn't tell us. I should have, should have held on to that. My <laughs> usual form would have been to do so. Don't know why I spoiled that. Spoiler alert, I should have said. It's three years. Okay. That's not a spoiler. <laughs> no, it's not. I agree. 
because everybody knows a few is three. Are we all agreed? It's now scriptural <laughs> that a, a few is three. Okay. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, consider this. God even told Elijah, hide for three years. <laughs> right? So Elijah knows, if I show myself to Ahab, I'm in danger. And it's not like the rain has already come. God's asked me to go to Ahab before it rains and present myself to him. Which I think you can almost read as, turn yourself in. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not, it's not like that's the Hebrew. I'm just saying that's the feel. Right? Turn yourself in. Go, go to the man who's been trying to kill you and say, here I am. And once again, if, a, if Elijah's who we know him to be, he's going to be courageous. He's going to be quick to respond to what God says. And he's going to persevere, even though initially he's going to have a hard time getting to Ahab. And guess what? All three of those are true. That is exactly what we're about to see. He's probably visibly, immediately, visibly more nourished than every other person. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true, too. Like, that's, I think I hated you before. That's a good point. Yeah. How fair is this? Yeah. <laughs> he's got a little glow. His skin isn't all peeling off. Yeah, you're probably right. That's a really excellent point. That's a that's a low carb Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's clean, but well, that's true. It's carbs. Okay, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah's counting on this not being a bad idea, and on God following through with the rain. Right? I mean, this is all to God. So, and this is what you would expect. Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Again, it's that simple. God says, go do it. Elijah says, cool. And in some ways, you get the sense from Elijah, he is the kind of guy, he's probably like, finally. You know, I, I've been doing what you asked me to do, God, but cooling my heels in this widow's house is not what I'm destined for. You know, come on. Let's get, yes, finally. All right. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Remember I told you to remember the name Obadiah because he was an official for uh, Jehoshaphat. Well, this Obadiah is an official for Ahab. So it's unlikely they're the same person, except we're about to find out that Obadiah is actually a spy. He doesn't actually serve Ahab, he serves God. Is it possible that he was actually an official of Judah sent over to Ahab to get himself in there somehow as a spy? I think it's possible. I think it's not likely. But it's a fun story that commentators like to talk Why about. Why do you think so, it's not likely? Why? Because I don't know how you do that. How do you worm your way into Ahab's palace as an administrator? It's just hard. Okay, if you want to think it's likely, you can. It doesn't change the story really at all, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it doesn't tell us he is. It's just that the names happen to be the same. So you believe whatever you want, and it's totally fine. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Now, this is a lot. Imagine what's happening here. So Obadiah, and it says, I think we have to go with what the text says, what the author says. He's a devout believer. I think we're supposed to take from that that he's where he should be. He's not being cowardly. God has him there to save people. Okay, so here he is. He's the palace administrator. Amazing whether he came from Jehoshaphat or not. It is amazing this devout believer somehow ended up the palace administrator. He is the, he is the guy making the plans and the arrangements for the king. It's pretty crazy. 
And in this process, Jezebel is killing off all of the Lord's prophets. She can't get to Elijah. She's going to get to all the other ones she can. Well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, how many prophets are running around? around? Good question. A really important question, in fact. We'll get to that later. Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Now, this is the other thing that's interesting. He's hiding them in caves, and he's regularly feeding a hundred people out of, well, the palace's supplies. It has to be, right? Oh, yeah. Which is interesting, because the next thing we're going to find out is that even the palace is running out of food. And would they have run out of food as quickly if he wasn't feeding a hundred people every day? No, of course they wouldn't have. So it's amazing he's been getting away with this. That's pretty incredible. Again, they're probably not eating a lot, but they are a hundred people living in two caves. By the way, just uh, again, an interesting side note, commentators do point out this is the land of very large caves. So to say that they're hiding 50 people or 100 people in two caves is not, is not problematic. In fact, they're, they're multi-room caves. You know, they're almost like mansion caves. Right. A lot of them. Jesus so. could feed yeah. yeah, true. All right. But you said, where are all these prophets? How many are there running around? That's actually a really important point. Hold that point. We're going to come back to that later. We know there's at least 100. And one. <laughs> and two. We'll see, actually, because there's another one in a second. But. All right. Or not in a second, but a little later. Ahab had said to Obadiah, and this is how much Ahab trusts Obadiah, by the way. He doesn't realize Obadiah is the reason they've run out of food. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. Now, this means a couple of things. It means that Ahab himself is eating fine, right? But it also means as king of Israel, how much concern does he have for all the people in Israel? None. He's like, he's exactly the kind of thing that Nathan accused David of. Remember when, when Nathan was telling that story? He's like, can you imagine a rich man who has a lamb and he goes and takes the lamb from the poor man because he wants to have a party with it? And David's like, that's horrible. That's exactly who Ahab is. He's like, I'm eating fine, but I don't want to kill my animal. My animals, which I'm guessing the rest of Israel also has already lost their animals because they go, right? Because when you run out of food and water, your animals are going to go before your son. Right? And so he's like, oh, we'll just go take their grass and their water to feed the animals of the palace. This is how bad a king is. He's not just a sort of wicked man. He's terrible. Think about Solomon's standards as bad as he was for what a king should be. A king should be there for the welfare of his people. A king should be there to serve his people. Ahab is there clearly not to serve his people. He doesn't care. And they've already been getting that. His animals are still Yeah. So here he is. He's with Obadiah. He's like, go out and find him. Now, knowing Obadiah, I'm guessing he's going to do a terrible job of this, right? I think Obadiah's already got in mind, I'm not taking anybody's grass and water to feed your stupid animals. What I might do is see if I can find some grass and water, feed some people out there, and maybe some of those prophets I've hidden in the caves. I mean, whatever. But he's not, he's not going to do that. But, but it says they divided the land they were to cover. And again, if I wrote a movie about this, I don't know that this is true, but my artistic license, I would have dividing, the, dividing to cover the land be Obadiah's idea, just so he doesn't have to, to actually do this thing with Ahab, right? You go that way, I'll go this way. He's not going to do what Ahab wants. <laughs> Ahab can go look. Ahab's not going to have a lot of luck, and Obadiah probably knows that too, because who's going to help Ahab? Nobody, right? So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. So here comes Elijah getting ready to present himself to Ahab. And along the way, he runs into Obadiah, of all people, right? This is crazy. 
Obadiah recognized him. Obadiah recognizes him. He was there three years ago. He knows this. In, he's probably got a wanted poster all over the palace, right? I mean, everybody knows who Elijah is. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied, Go tell your master Elijah is here. So Obadiah responds in subservience to Elijah because he recognizes him as the prophet who prophesied the rain. He knows this is a man of God. He's hidden all these other prophets in the caves. Maybe Elijah's coming to him to be hidden in the cave. He doesn't know, right? But he, he bows in front of him and he says, is it really you? Because maybe he thought Elijah was dead. I mean, who knows, right? He hasn't been seen. And he says, go tell your master Elijah is here. And this is Obadiah's response. What have I done wrong? Asked Obadiah. That you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. All right? He's, he's just concerned. He's thinking, if I go give him hope that you're around and then the spirit of the Lord takes you, or I'm sure there's some doubt in his mind. You just change your mind. I mean, you know, whatever happens and you're not here, I will die. And he says, it's not really just me. He says, you should know this about me, Elijah. I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So you can see Obadiah's reaction. You can understand it. You could contrast it, I suppose, to Elijah's immediate response. But again, this is Elijah telling him, not God telling him necessarily. So his first reaction is, really? Are you sure about this? Because I will die. You will die. And I want to make sure you know I'm on your side because I know I'm in the palace. But do you know that I did this? Now remember this. He has told Elijah about these prophets. This is an important point coming up too. So Elijah knows about this. But I think that's his point too. I'm actually, it's important I don't die. I'm part of the rebellion here. <laughs> right? You don't kill Luke Skywalker. Come on. Give me a chance here. Um, so, but he does. But he says, look, as the Lord Almighty lives, I will present myself to Ahab. Don't worry. I'm going to be there. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And again, characteristic understatement of this author, when he saw Elijah. So it's like we just, it just happens. It's just like, so Elijah did. Great. Okay. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now this is a weird phrase, and to us it sounds almost sort of quaint and like affectionate. You know, oh, it's the troubler of it. That's not at all. He's, <laughs> he's calling him a traitor. He's calling him a troublemaker he's calling of, of the highest degree he's like you, and why is he saying that what's the trouble he thinks elijah caused the drought. the drought so he thinks elijah's responsible for a really really bad thing that's happened right is that you you troubler of israel i have not made trouble for israel elijah replied but you and your father's family have again elijah's courageous right here he is it's just him and am face to face and elijah's like you're the problem you don't know why the drought's here it's not me you. You're the reason for the drought. He says, you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. All right. I'm going to give you just a little bit of information about Baal. Very, very little. 
first of all, Baal ends up being used throughout the Old Testament so flexibly that at certain points it may just mean any false god. But, but as far as the Baals at the time of Ahab, first of all, the word Baal just means Lord. So that's why it could be kind of anybody. But there was in Canaanite mythology, there was the idea that Baal was a sister of Asheroth. And because we see Asheroth and her poles so often, we suspect this is that same mythology going on. So he's a sister at Asheroth, and he's the storm god. He's Thor, okay? And he makes rain, and rain makes crops. And so he's responsible for crops. He's also, notice, the person that should be giving them rain for the last three years. Now we understand why God chose to not let it rain for three years. Right? What's God's point? Is you, you keep calling out to Baal. Keep going at it. Keep going at it. You getting any rain yet? Is Baal giving you rain yet? Is the storm God helping you out yet? Hmm, nothing yet, huh? This is not just a random famine and drought. This is God attacking, just like he did with the Egyptian plagues, right? He's attacking the core of their power. He's saying, you think Baal's going to give you rain and crops? Go ahead. Keep asking. See if he answers. Did you say, did you say Baal was a female? No. I, say, I, I did. I did not mean to. Okay. I meant to say he was the brother to Asheroth, who was okay. his sister. I did, in fact, say that. I know that because I wrote it down that way. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of makes a little sense that he would... So thanks for catching me. <laughs> that's one thing. He can't see the amazing success. And I think a lot... There, there is, by the way, just humanly speaking, there is a certain, certain, uh, certain reality to the fact that sometimes our greatest moments are followed by feelings of great emptiness. And I think there's both spiritual and physiological reasons for that. We can only handle being up so long. It's part of the reality of who we are. But I also think spiritually there's that sense of, you know, we have these great victories and they're just not everything we wanted, no matter how good they are. We just feel like God didn't bring it all to bear. So... Then he gets there and he says, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, right? I've had enough. That's almost a blame thing, right? God, you've, I'm tired, I'm done. You fed me with ravens. All those things that were miracles now just look like really big pieces of drudgery, right? I had to eat from ravens. I had to eat from a widow. I had to hang out with a widow and her son, right? I've had enough. Take my life. But then he says this. Before we get into that was a pretty interesting presentation you gave there about why you think he did that. Well, there's more, but go ahead. Okay, but how much of this is your speculation? How much of this is your um, investigation? Have, have you... You have the same information I have. He had this incredible victory, and then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, and he collapses. There may be other explanations for that, but this is the best one I can see, but, I, but we're going to get a hint for another one, too. So let's, let's press on and then we'll see. He prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I want you to think about that phrase for a second. Because the question dying to be asked at that statement is, whoever said you were better than your ancestors? Right? Yeah. This is like a realization to him. But why is it a realization? It can only be a realization if there's part of him that thought he was better than his ancestors. And here's what he's thinking. Here's what we see from that statement. I look at the history of, at least the recent history, and I see failure after failure of people who are not courageous and faithful and perseverant. I see people who are completely not trusting God. But me, I have been faithful. And I've been in there. And I've stuck with it. And I have not failed you, God. 
And I have been an honest and clear and good prophet. And I want to point something else out. I actually think when he says, I am the only prophet, he's tilting that a little bit too. I think that might have been a little bit of an indication that the prophets that are hiding in caves, they're hiding in caves. They're not out here challenging the prophets of Baal or Mount Carmel. Yeah, they're in the cave, but they kind of don't count because they're in the cave. I'm the only real prophet. Now, I don't know that he would have said it that way or disparaged them publicly, but I think there's a seed of that in him that comes out when he says, I'm no better than anybody else. My ancestors were faithless, and I thought I was faithful, but now, because now this is what he's realizing. Jezebel says one thing, and I collapse. He's realizing his own frailty, his own discouragement, and he's saying, I gave up. I'm no better than they are. It's actually a true statement, <laughs> but it's coming to him as a shock, and that's a very hard pill to swallow if it's a shock. Do you understand that? The realization that you're no better than everybody else you thought you were better than, that may be an important realization, but it's a tough one. It is a tough one. I mean, he's thinking about that widow. He's like, I'm no better than her, right? He's thinking about the people that are in the caves, and he's thinking, I'm no better than him. I'm hiding under a broom tree. So I think he's, he failed to recognize his own frailty, which is what led to this. He didn't completely get it, even though I think God has been trying to show him that all along, right? That dependence, that humility that he's trying to build into Elijah because he knew this moment was coming. I think he's been trying to show Elijah that. But when he says, I'm no better than my ancestors, it kind of shows where he's coming from. Oh my gosh, I am just like everybody else. Very, very quick story. I remember the day, and it feels, I didn't say take my life from me. By God's grace, that's never been a prayer of mine. But I did feel this way. And I had this realization I was no better than the people around me, and it shocked me. <laughs> you all knew it, but I was shocked. And it was, I remember the day I realized that I actually do not love people very well. That's, that's what it was for me. I am a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. People tend to like being around me. I'm kind to people. I tend to treat people well. I thought I knew how to love. And one day... I realized I do it all for me. <laughs> I do it all for me because I like people liking me, because I like people thinking I'm kind, because I like being known as that guy. And I had this, this incredible revelation that I do not love people any better than the rest of these gay who's around here. And for years, I've been thinking that I was a better lover and I would teach them how to be one too. And that realization was like this. It was a shock. I was like, oh, God, I'm not any better at this than they are. And it was, it, was a, it was a year of pain to work through that. And the conclusion I came to at the end is that it was the correct realization. <laughs> it's still true. <laughs> I wish it weren't. But it's still true. That doesn't mean I can't grow, and it doesn't mean that there isn't. Sometimes I love well, as it is with you. But it means that I'm just as bad at it as the rest of humanity. <laughs> and the realization of that was like this. But it was necessary for me to recognize my own frailty in that area, to recognize that is not, it was not accurate for me to think otherwise. In fact, it's probably one of the least loving things I did in my life was to look down on people because they weren't loving enough. <laughs> because I thought I had it. I think this relates to the prophets, as I mentioned, in the cave. All right, but my favorite part of the story is what happens next. Because I think these kind of things happen to all of us. 
our eyes get askew. We look for success where it isn't. We look at our own self-sufficiency where it isn't. We forget that we're frail. We forget that we can't do it. We mess up. We get discouraged. We get depressed. And we lay under a broom tree. And I love God's response. This is my favorite part of the story, is the way God responds to Elijah. Because by all rights, and let's be honest, again, for most of us, if we were God and the universe is grateful, we're not. But if any of us were God dealing with Elijah, the temptation, and I know this because I'm a parent, this is my temptation all the time, would be to say to Elijah, did I not feed you with ravens? Did I not raise someone to life in front of you? Did I not bring fire down when you asked? Did I not get rid of all the prophets of Baal? Grow up. Get out of here. At a low point in my life as a counselor, I did a lot of counseling in my life. I don't do much anymore. But at a very low point of counseling in my life, when I was counseling people, I got tired. And I got a little burned out. It was around the same time I realized I didn't love people well. There's a connection here. (laughs) But I got burned out. And jokingly, I never used this, trust me, but jokingly in my head, I came up with a new four-point plan for all counseling when people came to me. And it was four Gs. And it was get over it, grow up, get a life, and go home. That was going to be my new counseling mantra. And you could see God wanting to, I mean, you can't see him really wanting, but if we were God, you could see us wanting to kind of say that to Elijah. Come on, buddy. Everything we've been through. But I love the response. So this is what happens. Elijah, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Classic sort of what you do when you're depressed, right? So he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. Now, the drought is over, but the famine's not. You understand that, right? And this is fresh baked bread. This is a great thing to wake up to, right? And the angel touches him. I love that too. You know how often in stories angels touch people? Very rarely. Very rarely. I just love the idea the angel comes down. He doesn't even want to just, he doesn't even want to shock Elijah. The angel isn't like, wake up! With the big booming angel voice, right? He comes down in some form that Elijah can handle. And he touches him on the shoulder. And he wakes him up. And Elijah wakes up. And then he looks over and there's bread freshly baked. And a jar of water. And the angel touched. So, and the angel says, get up and eat. And so it says, he ate and drank and then lay down again. I love it. You want proof that Elijah is really in a bad place right now? A miraculous baked bread and jar of water just came to him. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And Elijah eats it. And then what does he do? Does he say, thank you? Does he say, oh, let me get my head on straight now? Does he say, oh, you're right. You've always been with me and provided. Oh, this is much better than a raven. No, he doesn't say any of that. He goes back to sleep. Why does he go back to sleep? Yes, and he's tired. He's just tired. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. This is one of my very favorite moments in all of scripture. Because sometimes we think God doesn't know that the journey is too much. Sometimes we think that we, because we aren't very good at that. We look at someone who's depressed and we say, you can do it. Buck up. Get back on the horse. Go back out there. It's all good. You're totally capable. (laughs) But God looks at Elijah and says, Elijah, you're feeling tired and incapable and like you can't do the job. And the angel says, God agrees. (laughs) But not in a bad way. He's not disappointed. See, this is what's important. This is what I love about this moment. God doesn't look at Elijah and say, oh, man, I really thought you were going to persevere through this. 
I really thought you were going to be a man of great courage and faith who would never fail. Elijah, I'm so disappointed. Yeah, I'm still here, but oh man, you're not the man I thought you were. That is not where God's coming from. Because it isn't God. Oops, sorry. It isn't God who forgot that Elijah was frail. It isn't God who forgot that Elijah was no better than his ancestors. It's Elijah. God knew it all along. God's never been confused about that. God looks at Elijah and says, hey, buddy, you're just now realizing what I've been trying to tell you. You can't do this. I'm asking you to do stuff nobody can do. (laughs) Trust me, buddy. The the, the prophets in the cave, they're not doing it because I didn't ask them to do it. And I didn't empower them to do it. That's the only reason. You're doing it because I asked you to do it. And I empowered you to do it. That's the only reason. But I'm not disappointed in that, Elijah. That doesn't make you less of a person. That doesn't make you less of my son, of the person that I love. It doesn't make you less important to me. It doesn't mean you failed as a prophet. It means you've been a little confused about what your role is. (laughs) But I know the journey is too much for you. So get up and eat. Enjoy the rest. Enjoy the food. The journey is too much. I just think it's a great, great picture of God's grace. It's not the end. He's going to go on and restore Elijah. And we're going to see, like everybody else, and this is important, that even this, it isn't like Elijah hears that and he's like, oh, let's go, I'm ready. He's still got to work through this. The very next thing God does is send him on a journey. You know how long that journey is? 40 days. 40 days. There's another, another very popular, uh, popular word. But 40 days is long enough to really reflect, isn't it? And if you think about the journey that God sends him on for 40 days, which passes in one verse in Scripture, because it's just like he marched 40 days to Mount Sinai is where he goes. It's Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. But if you think about it, God's giving him a 40-day rest. He's giving him a vacation. He's giving him a sabbatical. He's giving him a chance to reflect. He's giving him a chance to process everything that just happened and come to grips with the idea that the journey's too much for him. Even the journey... To realize the journey is too much, is too much. (laughs) I mean, that's what God's telling him here. You can't even make this 40-day journey of rest that I'm asking you to make. So do. So we'll talk about that next week. We'll we'll pick up and kind of follow Elijah's restoration. But it's a a continuing story of grace. You know, just he, he not only gives him the 40 days of rest, he then meets with Elijah in exactly the way Elijah needs him to meet with him. Not the way Elijah wants him to meet with him, but the way he needs Elijah to meet. And it changes Elijah. I really believe that. And then he does one more very gracious thing to Elijah. You know what he does? He gives him a friend. <laughs> he does. Literally gives him a friend. He's like, I got a friend waiting for you. Go, go get him. He's going to walk with you. So you don't do this alone anymore. So you don't have to. It's just a great picture of God's grace. But it's also a great picture of, of, of the continuing ministry of Elijah. This moment does not disqualify Elijah. It doesn't take him out of the game. But it's real, and it's important. And it it reminds us, I think, two things we have to remember. Success is what God calls us to. And responding faithfully to what he calls us to is is what we need to learn to tune our success meters to, and not to the thing that we think is what should happen. I've become very convinced over the last several years that we've done, we mostly meaning other pastors, We've done a huge injustice to pastors of small churches across our country. The average, I say small churches, but the truth is the average size church in America is 80. 80 people, right? And 
And yet, and only uh, only about five percent of churches, well, less than five percent of churches are mega churches. And yet, what we tell pastors is, if they don't break that hundred barrier, they're not a church. We don't say it that way, but we say it. And we tell them they're doing something wrong, and we tell them they're failing, and we tell them they're not successful. And I've just become more and more and more and more convinced we're wrong. Maybe the reason the average size church is 80 is not because all, half of our pastors or more than half of our pastors are doing something wrong. Maybe it's because for most people, that's a really good number. Maybe there's a reason for that. I'm not saying the mega churches are bad, but maybe they're the exception for a reason. Maybe they're supposed to be. Maybe we should get broader instead of bigger. That's a whole other story, but my only point is I think we're not very good at defining success as people. And I think that we need to let God do it. And we need to learn to be okay with that. And the second lesson from Elijah we really need to learn is that the journey's too much for you. And it's okay to acknowledge that, because God does. <coughs> David says in the Psalms, you guys may remember, he says, God knows we are just dust of the earth. He's not fooled. He was there when we were dust of the earth, remember? <laughs> he was there when we were just sperm and egg. I mean, he was there. He knows that we're made of molecules. He knows that we're, we're frail. It's okay. We need to acknowledge the journey's too much for us. And then the third thing we learn from the story of Elijah is that because God knows the journey's too much for us, that's why he promises to always be with us. And he's not disappointed in you. And he's not surprised that you're frail. And he's not waiting for you to buck up and get yourself together. He's just waiting for you to lean on him again. He's just waiting for you to listen to him again. He's just waiting for you to learn that next lesson of dependence on him. And he may feed you with ravens, which sounds really unpleasant to me, or he may feed you with a friendly widow, which sounds quite a bit better. Or he may feed you in the palace of David. I don't know how he chooses and why he chooses what he chooses. But in wherever it is, he's with you. And he cares. And he's gentle. And he'll send his angel to touch you on the shoulder and remind you of that every hour now. And he'll let you sleep. And he'll bring you food. Today we're looking at 2 Chronicles 17 and 1 Kings 17 through 19. Thank you for listening to The Journey. Discipleship Matters is a ministry started by David McGill to help pastors, particularly of small and medium-sized churches, to achieve discipleship communities. To learn more about Discipleship Matters, visit davidmcgill.com.